Before your keys, I'm trying to 
Greetings and good day. Welcome to White Wellness Radio. I am your host, Tabitha. Today, June 28th, 2022, broadcasting out of New York for White Wellness Radio. That song right there was Dope Lemon with Hey You back in 2019. The topic for this week's broadcast is Post-Truth Antidotes. I figured it was an appropriate title, given the fact that we live in very much a post-truth world. The last two years should have been indicative of that, but more and more it's obvious that we live in a post-truth world. So to start out, the word of the week. Let's see what we've got here. Gotta pick one of these cards. I'll close my eyes so I don't see what I'm picking. All right. Oh, this is a good one. Grog Blossom. G-R-O-G hyphen Blossom. Vulgar. 18th century expression for a drunkard's nose, the redness of which was caused by dilation of the blood vessels from consumption of alcohol. By itself, grog meant, quote, rum, diluted with an equal part of water, unquote, not served straight, as once was customary. The unpopular admiral Edmund Vernon offered this watered-down drink to his crew in 1740 in an attempt to reduce onboard intoxication. The crew nicknamed him, quote, Old Grog, for his oft-worn cloak or breeches made from grogram, a coarse-textured woolen fabric. So grog blossom is essentially a vulgar expression for someone who's very much into the booze or the drink, as they call it, across the pond, and then they get one of those large um, red noses. And if you know anything about what they call visual diagnosis, or it's historically been called oriental diagnosis, of course, that word oriental is considered terribly on PC. Of course, I use all words over at the broadcast, anything to do with words being politically incorrect or not that doesn't matter to me. But when someone's nose is enlarged, that typically means there could be a cardiac issue because as the book goes, your face never lies. It's true. You can read a lot about a person just by looking at their face. We're often told that mantra that the eyes are the windows to the soul. That is true. But there's definitely more than just that. I mean, you can tell by looking at someone's eyes if they're all there, but you can also tell a bit more by looking at their other features or other facial features to see what's up. So you'd be able to discern if someone was a grog blossom by looking at their face as well. I kind of like this expression. I think it's um, something we should bring back into style, albeit I'm not really um, a fan of, you know, large consumptions of alcohol. I think that is something that a lot of people have gotten into the habit in, especially with Oyed AI. I remember those articles from the New York Times? They were telling people, why don't you have a martini in the shower in the morning? You know, why not? Right? Shower cocktails. It's okay. It's, it's quote, quarantine. It's, it's quote, lockdown. Have a martini or a margarita in the shower. It's no problem, right? And now in this post-truth world, I mean, few things make sense anymore. I mean, we're told all types of mind zoggery on a regular basis that leaves are the basis of a, a human diet that cutting off our genitals will yield happiness or prevent suicide. I mean, nothing could be further from the truth and it keeps on getting wackier and wonkier as time goes on. So that was the word of the week, grog blossom. So to start off the broadcast, I wanted to read this little piece about the season of summer. And I've talked about seasons uh, before from the perspective of how the seasons of the year, and of course, not everyone lives in a place where we have the four seasons. 
I happen to live somewhere where we do have the four seasons, albeit they seem to be less crisp. Uh, they seem to have more, I don't know, malleability as time goes on. But of course, those fall, four seasons are fall, winter, spring, and summer. Sata nama, right? Those seasons can also be applied to a woman's body. Summer would be ovulation. Fall would be the luteal phase. Winter would be menstruation, the season of death, right? And spring would be the follicular phase leading up to ovulation. So right now we're in the phase looking at the woman's body as kind of like a, I don't know, an ally to what we're doing with the whole seasons of this being summer. We can see that we're in the season of ovulation. This is the season of summer. Summer solstice arrived last week in the northern hemisphere and you know what that means? It's officially summer and yes it is although some people consider July 4th to be the first day of summer. Um, I don't know. Some people say Memorial Day. I, I guess the solstice for me makes the most amount of sense. I don't really care too much about Memorial Day or 4th of July for you know the holidays. It doesn't really mean much to me like their holidays their laws, it doesn't really mean much to me. I don't really live my life according to those things, but anyway. So it's officially summer, AKA the season of pleasure. According to some Eastern medicine biorhythm clocks, summer is the year's ovulation phase. And isn't it interesting too, just thinking from a panoramic perspective with this whole stuff with uh, Roe versus Wade and them looking to do what they're doing with, uh, you know, more illegality with abortion. Isn't it interesting that this was done during the season of summer, which is the season of ovulation? Kind of interesting if you think about it all from a big perspective, right? So summer is this is the year's ovulation phase, and it makes sense. Much like the female cycle, the ovulation phase is a time we naturally feel like socializing, inspiration around being more productive, and libido increases along with the temperature. Is it getting hot in here or is it just us? And of course that makes sense during the phase when you're fertile. Wouldn't it make sense that you'd be feeling your horniest? Of course, right? Think about when an animal goes into estrus or what is colloquially termed as heat, right? If you ever have been around an animal who goes through their natural cycles, it'll give you more appreciation for your natural cycles. Now is the time to conceive or quote fertilize what you wish to create in your life and let it turn you on. Of course, this isn't just in regards to women and it's not just in regards to pregnancy. And of course, I don't mean that in like some transsexual way. I mean that if you have an idea for something you want to birth or conceive, you don't necessarily have to be wanting to conceive a child. Of course, that's beautiful if that's what you want to do. But if you are a woman and you want to do something else, or if you're a guy, you can take this whole idea and use it how you want to. This is not transsexual ideas of men conceiving, because of course, that's, that's post-truth language. We also have a new moon in Cancer today. Cancer is a water sign ruled by the moon, creating a beautiful combination of supportive energies to tap into your heart, emotions, and inner world. The more you align with the natural flow of mama nature, the easier it will be to create the life and pleasure you most desire. Tap into your intuition and ask yourself, how do I want to feel? What a question to ask ourselves, right? Considering how many things we take in in a regular basis that can make us feel so lousy or great, depending on what we're doing. So how do I want to feel? How can I create more pleasure in my life? How many times people actually ask themselves a question like that? How can I create more pleasure in my life? Maybe I can savor my lunch outside. 
Maybe I can relax in the house with no underwear on. You know, things like this, little things. How can I bring more pleasure to my creations and creative process? And finally, what am I being called to create right now? So this can be implemented any way you want it to be. But remember, you can tap into this and ask yourself these questions. We live in this such a fast culture, a post-truth fast culture, where most people don't even slow down to ask themselves, how do I want to feel? Even asking yourself, what do I want to eat right now? Most people are just on autopilot and walk into a place and say, oh, I'll get a turkey sandwich or, or something like that. Not even thinking, what do you really desire right now? Like, what do you want to eat? Like, what do you want to do? It's a question that oftentimes we don't give ourselves the time or the space, more importantly, to ask ourselves those questions. So in this fecundant season, this this season of, of ovulation and and heat and inspiration and productivity. Reflect on this and see how you can create more of what you want for your reality. I mean, we essentially aggregate our reality based on images in regards to what we see on the antisocial media, right? I mean, I've aggregated a lot of what I see to reflect what I want to create. Like I want to create harmony. I want to be, um, feeling, you know, good vibes, feeling, feeling a groovy natural buzz. Like I don't want to see videos or messages of things that are going to pull away from that, right? And I think one of the um, purposes of antisocial media, well, there's many, of course, but one of it is to basically um, hijack our consciousness. And I want to talk about that a little bit later more so, but just kind of uh, whetting everyone's appetite for it right now, that we do have the ability to create what we want to see and what we don't want to see. That's why I named this show Post-Truth Antidotes, because even though we live in this zoggy zog world, we can still take the time to create an environment and a mindset that isn't zoggy zoggy zio, right? So a little bit there about the summer solstice and how we are in this summer season, which is the season of conceiving or fertilizing your ideas and what you wish to create in your life. So reflect on that and, and think about that. We've got some humans in the chat. We've got uh, Tulian, we've got uh, Tia PCTZ, and we've got Epiphany. Epiphany says, I can't stand summer. Way too hot. I just want to hide in the dark room until it's over. I like summer. I think it depends where you're at in the world. Um, but I guess like, if you're more in like the dry heat, like here we have humidity, which is one of the, I guess, the issues that makes it kind of, mm, I guess, unfavorable sometimes, but I hasn't been that humid as of late. It's actually been kind of like more of a breezy summer thus far. So I've been enjoying it. And there's always little tips and, and tricks that you can do to kind of make yourself tolerate the weather uh, better. We're actually going to talk a little bit about that too on today's broadcast. I've got some groovy kind of like, uh, I guess esoteric really isn't the word, maybe just off the beaten path topics for today's show that is titled Post-Truth Antidotes. So just a little bit there about the season that we're in and just to enjoy it the best, um, the best we can before we know it. It'll be fall or autumn, and then it will probably be, um, well, will probably be, it definitely will be winter after that, so. And we also have OG joining us, hello. So just a little bit there about um, summer and all that groovy jazz. 
So now I just wanted to talk a little bit about this uh, Roe v. Wade thing, which I'm seeing all over the place, um, people talking about it and having strong opinions. And I'll just give my little two cents about what I feel about it and all that jazz. And um, of course, this is a, a legal move based on the Zog legal system. Um, People are always going to do what they want to do, whether something is legal or illegal. I mean, look, heroin's been illegal for decades. Does that stop people from scoring heroin and either snorting it or shooting it or mixing it with other things? No, it doesn't. So where there's a will, there's a way. Um, people are always going to do what they want to do. Um, I think overall what I wrote on the Vedic fertility um, sex, sex, Vedic sex fertility and yoga page essentially sums up how I feel about this issue. And I just simply wrote this the other day. Let's see where it is. A woman's body creates life and death every month for decades of her life. And of course, that would be the menstrual cycle, satanama. The fertile or the summer ovulation phase is the life phase of the cycle, right? That's the phase when you can create life in your body. And then we have what's known as a menstrual cycle where the endometrial lining or the uterine lining sheds, and that's the death. So a woman's body creates life and death every month for decades of her life. The chutzpah of Zog to think that that can be controlled by a man-made law. It can't. It never has been, right? Women have been getting pregnant, doing, you know, giving birth, you know, doing terminations, doing all of that outside the system for millennia. So whatever the system says, that's on them. That's their law. Does it mean that everyone's going to abide by it? Certainly not. And the people who are cheering on a man-made law... I have to ask, um, are they looking for the birth rates of whites to increase, decrease? I don't know. Are they looking for the birth rates of other races to increase or decrease? I don't know. But it sounds very Noahide-like to cheer on any Zog law, especially since they want to put these Noahide laws, I think, into action by... What was the year? 2035? I think they want to have it all set in stone. I mean... Given what's going on in the world thus far, they're kind of inching towards that. You know, all the transsexualism stuff is is part of that, obviously. It reflects the colors of the, the Bifrost Bridge, which I've, of course, stolen from North Norse mythology. The bridge, of course, that is between Midgard and Asgard. So that's essentially how I feel about this, that it really takes a lot of chutzpah on behalf of Zog to think that they have uh, anything to do with the matters of a woman's body. It's a woman's choice, right? It always has. It always will be. And like I said, the people who are cheering it on, I think that's very Noahide-like. I think when anybody cheers on any move the system makes, or when someone gets really bent out of shape and gets their underwear in a bunch about any law that Zog does, that's someone who is kind of controlled by Zog and really needs to work on keeping their eyes and their psyche a lot cleaner. At least that's my take anyway. And something else to um, consider is this language. I mean, essentially, an abortion is a termination of pregnancy. An induced abortion would be what is known colloquially as an abortion. It would also can be called an induced miscarriage. And a miscarriage could be called a spontaneous abortion. I mean, there are some places in South America where if a woman has a miscarriage or a spontaneous abortion, which typically occurs in 30 to 40 percent of pregnancies. No one really talks about it, but it happens quite a lot. And there's many, many reasons why that would happen. Um, it's not just, you know, estrogen rises and progesterone drops. That's po possibly part of it, but there's way more than that. 
But there are some countries that are very, very Catholic countries where a woman can actually be jailed for having a miscarry. So the people who are cheering on this system move, again, very Noahide-like to cheer on anything that the system does and very unhinged and dysfunctional to get irate over what the system does. We should have basically kind of like a stoic reaction to these system shitstem moves, right? Also keep in um, mind that this word abortion has really only been part of a social talking point since like the 1950s, even though the act of pregnancy termination has been around for thousands of years in every culture before the advent of the pills they use for this and the surgical procedures. Many different cultures have been using all different types of herbs for thousands of years. So just to keep it in in perspective, I think a lot of times people have opinions on things based on what the media has told them and how they're supposed to react. Of course, most people can be played like a fiddle very easily. So I think that's all I have to say in regards to um, this topic. Um, and overall, I think it's really just something that um, is another divisive talking point. We had the costume as a divisive talking point, the OEDAI costume. We had the vaccination. We had the public roboting laws. We had the lockdown. We had all the race ruffling because of the Floyd PSYOP. Um, we had the Ukraine thing. We have the transsexual thing. Uh, oh my God. Do we need any more division? And I'm not just talking about division between you know all the races. I'm talking about division between our race do we really need any more division within the confines of the white race we don't um but they're always going to be piling on something to create division to create antagon um, antagonism and animosity between the sexes it just keeps coming and coming and coming we should be um aware of this and not buy into the zio sludge emotions that they want us to be persuaded by so essentially, that's what I have to say about that. Uh, and also something on a on a kind of a more unsavory tip is that this is probably going to lead to many people who aren't aware of the herbal traditions for this to seek kind of what they call a back alley abortion, maybe using something like a hanger, which could perforate your uterus, which could make someone s sterile, which could cause like hemorrhaging. So... Unfortunately, the people who, who don't know their own, you know, innate medical wisdom or medicine women techniques or know other medicine women, this is the people who it's going to hurt, essentially. And of course, it always takes two to tango. It's a man and a woman together that takes, you know, the, the event to happen and the pregnancy to happen, whether it's wanted or not. I also see this kind of in, an, in a different way where I think they're going to be promoting less less procreative sex like all the sex they're promoting of course via the lgbtp is of course non-procreative sex because those people have either cut their genitals off or they have the same genitals or they're putting it in someone's butt or someone's mouth so it really creates a very different situation when procreation is off the table and sexual activity still is so i think in a way this whole thing with roe v wade is actually going to fuel less procreative sex or actually what is essentially sex you know intercourse and more people doing kind of like lgbtp style of, of practices and they always have these sludge articles out there saying like oh 
straight people are terrible in bed compared to the LGBTP. Really? Um, I don't think that's true. I think that's just something they're saying to be like, oh, wait, maybe I should be part of the LGBTP if I want to be better in bed. No, it's about having a connection with another person and sharing that moment and knowing what they like and reading their signals, which of course, typically it's, it's more of a useful skill for men to know that for women, because women usually are turned on more by like emotional things and men are more turned on by like, you know, visuals, like, you know, nice set of breasts or something. But yeah, I think in general, this, um, this is one of the undersides of this whole thing is to promote uh, more LGBTP style of, um, of sexual um, expression. I guess you could use the word expression. Who the hell knows? And this weekend, actually, in New York City was the, quote, uh, Pride Parade. Um, I didn't go, of course, but that was happening during the weekend while all this Roe v. Wade stuff was, you know, brewing earlier in the week. So I definitely think there's a correlation uh, there. And of course, most of those people are going to be very pro, you know, medicalized termination, which is hilarious because these people can't even conceive or be in this situation to be on the on the other end of someone conceiving based on their actions. So be crazy for them to have an opinion on this now, wouldn't it? But anyway, that's my two cents on it. Um, I wouldn't let any type of uh, legal thing, whether it's a pro or a con, influence my life uh, too much because why? My life is about being a sovereign Aryan human. It's not about swaying back and forth based on what Zog tells me is legal or illegal. That's, that's erroneous to my lifestyle. Okay, let's see. We've got some comments here. We've got Country Karen joining us. Howdy. Epiphany says, I was told by my great-grandmother used knitting needles. I was told by my great-grandmother used knitting needles back in the early 1900s. You mean for... Um, for termination? Is that what you're talking about? That's what they used to do it back in the day? Oh, wow. That sounds pretty intense considering how large those those needles are. But yeah, that's, uh, I've even heard stories of people who had these like bad terminations back in the day and they were forever like damaged and sterilized and yikes. Uh, it's, it's, of course, it's a loaded topic for a lot of people. And I think it also plays into the Extian thing as well, you know, because it's a very Extian belief to be, to be against it. And then it's, it becomes more of a moral thing with when does life start? And then all the transhumanists. And I think the Oyves have this crazy thing in their belief system. This is, this is a just, it just goes to show like how, how different they are than us. But I think I remember hearing somewhere once that they believe that the soul only enters like the baby's body, like while the baby is actually being born. So they don't believe that like when the baby's inside the mom and like the baby's actually like, you know, has like some, I don't know, like some, some type of like soul being. It's really crazy. They think just at the moment of the birth is when, when that happens. I mean, typically the Kundalini traditions tell you after 125 days, um, that's not, that's not right after I'm forgetting it now. Um, but yeah, it's, you can just see based on so many of their ideas that they're just, they're so sterile. And that's one of the things I'm noticing more in this post-truth world. There's so much sterility to this world. Just what we talked about last week on the broadcast, 
everything is so much sameness. Like there's a million choices of ketchup in the store, but they're all the same, right? It's the same thing with a lot of like the music out there, the fashion, like we see sterility with sameness. And then they have the the gall to talk about how we have all this diversity in the world, which is just such a hoax. I mean, where's the diversity? Where is it, right? More like diversity, if anything. And something else with this Roe v. Wade, this is probably going to make rates of uh, other races go up, right? In something like that, like other other races could possibly proliferate in um, population based on this as well. So, And also we could also factor into people traveling to different states, possibly. And then maybe they have to got to get the OEDI test to go across the border or something like that. I mean, the whole thing is just, it's almost like they planned this out like 10, 20, 30, 100 years ago. And here we are now um, living through it. So, but yeah, basically at the end of the day, I see people cheering this on. It's very much a Noahide style of thing. And people who have their panties in a bunch are way too influenced by what Zog says is legal. I mean, did people stop using cannabis for years when it was illegal, even though now it's being legalized in most countries or most most states rather? No, people have been using it for millennia. I mean, it was it became illegal back in the 30s, I think in like 37 or something, I don't know. And only recently has it become, you know, decriminalized in certain areas. Of course, you go to Southeast Asia, you have some cannabis on you, they're gonna give you like a pretty strict jail sentence. So people have been doing things illegal or legal for as long as they've wanted to. Look at prohibition. When prohibition happened in this country, right? People actually were having more problems with alcohol, right? They were they were doing all this type of bathtub gin. So it doesn't necessarily mean that making something illegal is going to make it better, right? And Epiphany is absolutely right. You cannot legalize, uh, legislate morality. No, you cannot. You definitely can't. That has to come from within, from your own system of values and worth and belief. If they could uh, legislate morality, we wouldn't have all the, you know, the gross degenerate stuff in the world, right? But they really can't. And I think overall, it just shows that they really don't have as much power as they think they do. I think a lot of their power is given to them based on the reaction of other people, which is something to consider when you look at the whole big picture of things. So that's all I have to say on, on that topic. A little bit of current events right here on the broadcast. I haven't been doing too much with current events because, gosh, the stuff that's happening in the world is just, uh, it bores me, um, honestly. Um, or it's just so, I don't know. Just, just tasteless, I guess. I mean, what's going on in the world that's really, you know, that I'm going to be like, oh my God, I need to know about this, right? Right this minute. Like, if I don't find out now, what am I going to do? I don't really think about that. Um, who knows? But yeah, just looking over here at the Zio Sludge top stories, it's, uh, it's really nothing. It's nothing at all. Some stuff about Roe v. Wade, some stuff about migrants, something about crime, surging crime in Atlanta, Ghislaine Maxwell sentenced for 20 years for sex trafficking, probably just a hoax, probably on a beach in Tel Aviv, drinking a daiquiri. I mean, who who cares about this type of shit? Who gives a fuck, honestly? Like, why? I'd rather be chilling outside in the backyard, you know, getting some sun, you know, living my life, um, 
preparing for the future, becoming self-sufficient. I think that's a really important thing too. I think oftentimes it makes us feel like if we're in the know, we know what's going on from like a news perspective, like we're keeping abreast. But what about building our self-sufficient skills? What about working on our sovereignty, right? I mean, I think that's a really important thing that sometimes we we forget to think about. You know, what about finding out how we're going to get food? What about the future of food? I mean, do we really want to eat a lot of the food that Zog has been growing and all the the terrible Zagriculture practices that they do, all the, the pesticides and the herbicides and the glyphosate. I mean, I think that oftentimes we get, it's easy to get caught up in keeping abreast of the newsreel without thinking about ways that we can really be sovereign and, and self-sufficient. And of course, they promote that, you know, you've got to be in the know, you've got to keep abreast, you've got to be in the loop. Yeah, it's okay in an extent to be in the loop and things like that. I think is more important than being in a news loop is having a good social network, you know, and whether it's with people IRL or with, with, you know, online people, having a social network, I think is more important than just consuming news, 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 news. It's just like eating chips, right? Like it's, it's never going to satisfy essentially. So a little bit there. Now onto something a little bit different that I think is important, especially as we live in this ever so visual culture. I mean, most of the information we're getting is visual. I mean, think about it, like the meme is like the epitome of, you know, the visual culture shrunk down to like this one celled picture. It's almost like remember back in the day when you'd read like the Sunday funnies or like the comics and stuff like that's what memes essentially are. They're like comics that are no longer on newsprint. They're now on your mobile device or on your computer. So I want to talk about the heart and mind connection. This is kind of on the vein of a little bit of Germanic new medicine, but how thoughts and emotions affect our heart health. I mean, think about when you see an image online, when you hear about a news story, and of course it's always framed in a very sensationalistic perspective, but how the thoughts and emotions that you have when you read this news story, when you see this picture, how this can affect your heart health. And I think one of Zog's goals with all the sludge that's out there, they have like you know, 6 million like agendas, obviously, or more like 600 million. But I think one of their agendas is to harden our hearts. I think especially they want to harden the hearts of women because we instinctually are the sex that is the nurturing sex. We're the sex that, you know, births babies, nurtures babies, like we're the softer sex. So I think that one of Big Z's goals is to harden the hearts of all people, but especially to harden the hearts of women. Just think about when you see those like classic um, Zio Sludge, you know, fourth wave, third wave feminist pictures of someone who's like, my body, my choice, and they're like, they're naked and they have like some very, you know, vile uh, message or word like scrawled across their chest. I mean, that's someone with a hardened heart. Zog loves to see stuff like that. They rub their hands back and forth and they smile when they see stuff like that, right? They love that. Just like when the guys who go their own way and do the MGTOW stuff and are completely habituated to pornography, again, Zog rubs their hands and they love that type of stuff. They love when people's hearts are hardened off. They especially love when uh, a person's heart is hardened off to the opposite sex because they know that that sacred union can never occur, right? 
So here is a little bit about how thoughts and emotions can affect our heart health. And heart health is also tied to the nose, like we talked earlier about the grog blossom example of someone taking in too much alcohol and having like a very red nose. And our hearts are also connected to our dental health. And our hearts are also connected to our um, womb or yoni. And I think for men, it could also be a, you know, correlated with their with their genitals, with the penis and the testicles. But I think for women, especially since we carry the children for the next generation, I think for us, it goes a bit deeper because there is no analogous organ for the womb. The ovaries and the testes are analogous. The clitoris and the penis are analogous, but the womb is an organ that just us ladies have. Does your wife know or show her, does your wife show you her love? In a study of 10,000 married men, this question turned out to be revelatory. Among men with high levels of anxiety, a whopping 93% answered no, developed angina-related chest pains within five years, nearly twice the rate of those answering yes. So it is always important to show your, that you love other people in your life, right? Especially if you love your spouse, your children, you know, your family, whoever, whoever it may be. And of course, there's many different love languages out there. There's quite a few love languages out there. Some people resonate with the love language of touch. Some resonate with the love language of little gifts. Some resonate with little notes. Some, you know, some like compliments. Some like things done for them. So if, you, if you're able to discern what, especially for romantic relationships, but for everything, even dealing with, you know, everyone, just like platonic, family, uh, work, it's important to know what someone's love language is and know, know like what works for them. And if you can figure that out, you'll actually save yourself a lot of a lot of heartache. So this is a study that was actually done in, in Yusrahel back in the 70s. It was the first to clearly document how emotions affect the physical heart. Today, the research is so vast and compelling that last year, the American Heart Association issued a statement urging that psychological factors be taken into account for cardiovascular care which may result in doctors asking for asking patients about depression and anxiety, as well as testing for blood pressure and cholesterol levels. What is on your mind really does affect your heart. Our hearts require emotional health in order to maintain cardiovascular health. So if they're showing us all these images all the time that are hardening our hearts, they're actually inducing states of dis-ease. Probably another reason why antisocial media has become um, the beast that it has because they really want to control our health and you can control someone's health by controlling their emotions. Two emerging fields are probing the mind-heart connection. Neurocardiology, which studies their neurological interplay, and behavioral cardiology, which examines how psychological and social factors can lead to heart dis-ease. Increasingly, researchers are documenting that the brain and the heart form an intricate feedback loop that works neurologically, biochemically, and electromagnetically to optimize one's well-being. What hurts one, be it artery-clogging food or an angry outburst, can hurt the other. Important to know. What heals one, be it exercising or a hearty belly laugh, can heal the other. And the good news is that you can heal your heart by actively engaging in positive emotions each and every day. I mean, anyone listening who's ever experienced a breakup or the grief of someone dying, you know that your heart physically hurts like when you go through like a 
divorce or a breakup or somebody dies, like your chest literally hurts. So we ha can, our emotions can really affect our physical aspects. That's essentially what Germanic New Medicine is, how the mind and the emotions can manifest as dis-ease because the same thing could happen to 20 different people and there's going to be different outcomes for how everyone deals with that. They could all stub their toe, some will chuckle, some it'll be the worst day of their life. Unveiling the heart's role. In Western medicine, the heart has been downplayed historically as a pump, mechanistically taking orders from the boss, from a bossy brain. But recently, the heart's role is becoming re-examined. With 40,000 neurons, it sends more signals to the brain than it receives. The heart is a multi-layered, complex organ possessing intelligence, memory, and decision-making abilities independent from the mind. And that's very allopathic and very Western to see the body in mechanical terms. And I actually posted something yesterday about this. I got this new book on traditional Chinese medicine that showed how in the West, and by West, I'm not using it as an insult to insult white Western civilization. It's nothing like that. The West to me is a Talmudic transhumanistic paradigm. So they show a body and inside of it has like all these wires. So it looks like this very mechanistic looking thing like a machine because Zog sees us as a machine. We have no soul. We're quote, assigned a sex at birth, right? We can have a uterus transplanted into us so men can have children. You know, they just see us as a fucking machine. When in the Eastern traditions, which are the Vedic and the Aryan traditions, they see the body as a garden to be tended to. Extremely, extremely different and very important that this distinction is understood. The Western allopathetic, I like to call it allopathetic, paradigm teaches us the body is a machine, Talmudic tranny humanism. The Eastern or Dharmic paradigm teaches us the body is a garden, Aryan sovereignty, choose wisely. And that was spread all around uh, Telegram yesterday and Someone actually told me to fuck off, Chink, after I um, posted that um, and posted the title of the book. But I realize when people make really low vibe comments like that, that they don't understand our um, our lineage and where we've where we've been and what we've done. And they think that I mean, I've been called a dothead before. I've been called all types of these names, but it doesn't really um, upset me or, or anger me because I realize that. So many of us are extremely ignorant about our history. At one point in time, I was ignorant of our history as well. So for other people to be is completely, you know, completely um, plausible. Back to the article. The electromagnetic field that the heart generates is about 100 times stronger than the brain's magnetic range. It can be detected up to three feet away from the body. Oh, I wonder why we were doing all that, um, that, that public robotic and all that distancing. Hmm, makes a lot more sense now that we know all about the three feet distance. The, res the researchers found that one person's brain waves can synchronize to another person's heart and two hearts can synchronize to each other, which may help explain why people are drawn or repelled by each other. And of course, if you're repelled by someone, always keep aware of that feeling. Or if you're, um, you know, activated and appetized by someone like, you know, your body will send you these these signals to know if someone is is legit or not. When the heart's rhythms, when the heart's rhythm pattern becomes erratic and disordered during times of stress and negative emotions, the neural signals traveling to the brain's emotional centers will get disrupted, hindering clear thinking and reasoning, 
which may help explain why we make dubious decisions under stress. And I think that's very well said and very good to hear that you, you literally cannot make a decent, probably well thought out decision when you're in this frenzied state of stress and negative emotion, because like you really can't think clear. I'm sure everyone listening can remember a time in their life clearly when they made a decision and they're like, fuck, you know, I, that was a shit decision looking back. But they were in such a stead of just stress and depletion and just, you know, emotional, you know, dysfunction that they weren't able to really make the best decision. And I think that that's another thing that Zog wants. They want to keep us confused and frenzied and completely on the edge. So we'll never actually know what decision to make, right? We'll constantly feel confused all the time. And the only decision we'll be able to make is just walk into a place and be like, I'll just take a chicken sandwich. Like we won't even know, like, and that's the dumbing down goes, goes deep and it resonates on an organ level. The high toll of tough emotions. Although scientists debate whether emotions start in the brain, heart, or from physical sensations elsewhere in the body, it's clear through magnetic imaging technology, the MRIs, that it's the brain's task to process and regulate emotions via the flow of neurotransmitters through the amygdala, hypothalamus, hippocampus, prefrontal cortex, and other brain regions. Emotions like anger and fear and grief and anxiety set off a cascade of reactions involving the hormone cortisol, which is a stress hormone, and proteins called cytokines, creating an inflammatory response that, if it becomes chronic, can promote the accumulation of plaque in the arteries that can become unstable and rupture, triggering blood clots that lead to stroke and heart attack. So that's the thing when these bad emotions are negative is more of a, more of an appropriate word. when these negative emotions become a chronic state of existence that's what leads to dis-ease not to say that all stress is bad sometimes we need to have that stress response to know to you know take off if some feral savage is you know chasing us with a machete or like you know some bear is coming after us whilst we're camping like we need to be able to to go when we can go the problem is when it becomes chronic and it's all the time which essentially again another agenda of zogs is to keep us on the edge of our seat in a constant state of stress a constant state of fear a constant state of worry and a constant state of when will this end right like asking the abuser when will this end you never ask an abuser when it's when it's going to end you dip you get out of the situation Surveying 25,000 participants in 52 countries, the landmark inter-heart study back in 2004 concluded that about 30% of heart attacks and strokes are due to psychological factors and ongoing research supports this finding. I would say that there's always an emotional component in, um, in dis-ease. There has to be, right? And of course, there can be a toxicity and a malnutrition component and, and things like that. Um, but I think that, you know, there's always an emotional basis to why people are dealing with the symptoms that they have. So here are some of the things, um, that you go through when you have these negative, negative things happening to your heart. Depression. Adults that are depressed are twice as likely to develop heart dis-ease. In one study, moderate to severe depression quadrupled the death rate in heart failure patients. That's because when you're sad, it's heartbreaking. It literally hurts your heart. Anxiety. Researchers have linked chronic anxiety with a 48% increased risk of cardio, 
cardiac-related death over the last 11 years. It has also been shown to be a risk factor for angina, heart attacks, and ventricular arrhythmia. Shock. A sudden emotional or physical shock, like a death in the family or an earthquake, can trigger stress cardiomyopathy, also known as broken heart syndrome, which resembles a heart attack. And that's essentially what dramatic medicine would call a DHS, Dirk Hammer syndrome, after Dr. Hammer's son who died, um, I think he believe he was, he was murdered. Uh, and then Dr. Hammer went on to develop prostate cancer. So once a shock can happen, that can set off a cascade of more stress responses after the initial shock occurs. Anger, an episode of intense fury described as body tense, clenching fists or teeth and ready to burst increases by 8.5 times the risk of heart attack within the next two hours. And loneliness. Being socially isolated and lonely is linked to a higher risk for cardiovascular death and hypertension and obesity. And we've had a lot of this, I think, just ongoing with this OEAI, like post-truth culture. But I think we even had more loneliness happen with all the, quote, lockdowns and all the, quote, uh, quarantine and this affected a lot of people. It affected, I think, especially the very young among us and the very elderly among us. Alarming information since more than 60% of Americans report feeling lonely, left out, poorly understood, and lacking companionship, according to a 2020 survey. So all of those things, like not feeling like you're a part of something, like I think that's oftentimes why so many people will fall into these sludge cliques like veganism, feminism, MGTOW, transsexualism, any of this crap that like is, is kosher enough that you're allowed to like, you know, refer to yourself as one of these and like, you know, I guess public social settings as opposed to, you know, finding their racial, you know, their racial backing, like, you know, accepting their lineage and wanting to learn more about that and living a dharmic life. Like those things are typically frowned upon, especially if you're white. If you're another race, if you're, you know, if you're black or you're Jewish, this is amazing, you know. But for whites, it's like, it's, oh, my God, like, gross. That's typically the, the, con the connotation out there. But I feel that probably that's why we see a lot of loneliness in general for, for all age groups, because they're allowed to be part of, like, some sludge clique, but they can't be part of, like, you know, a group that supports, you know, doing things in a holistic, traditional, racial way. Because that is, you know, politically incorrect because we live in a post-truth world that's uh, veering towards, you know, uh, Talmudic Noahidism uh, every day, it seems like to me. So let's take a small little break right now. I'm going to play a song and then we're going to get into some interesting and appetizing information about how we can boost our brain and heart health because we just found out about what negative emotions and lack of love can do to our heart. We're going to talk about how we can connect to our heart and make our hearts feel warm and unhardened when we get back from this commercial break. I am Tabitha and you are listening to Post-Truth Antidotes. We will be right back after this song.
We are back. That was the band Cracker back in 1993 with Low. All right, back. Welcome to White Wellness Radio, Post-Truth Antidotes. We are talking about a lot of different topics on today's broadcast, talking about heart health right now, but before the break. And Epiphany is saying, I didn't have my dogs to take care of. I think I would have died years ago from loneliness. Yeah, pets can really um, boost everything i think i mean being around dogs cats whatever whatever animals someone's ha- has i think can really can really help us i think it could really give us perspective on just feeling emotions too like just being able to feel love especially if you know we've had issues with being around people who are abusive or just like fucked up and stuff like an animal's love is like it's very you know unconditional if an animal bites you or you know lashes out or something or is sassy it's not being done because of like maliciousness, you know? I think it's being done because they either want to be played with or they were frenzied or scared or something. So yeah, being around pets is 
is one of, I think, a really good tip for heart health, you know, and things of that nature. And of course, humans too, if they're good humans, right? I mean, there's a lot of sleazy humans out there, and there's some good humans too. And Bard is saying, kick abusers in the dick. Well, I guess if they have one, not everyone has one of those these days, right? And 6-4 Arrigan is saying, greetings, Tabitha. Well, greetings. Uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for joining us. So now we're going to talk a little bit about how to boost our brain and heart health, because we were just talking a little bit about what emotions can happen when our heart feels like not so good. Depression, anxiety, shock, anger, loneliness. These are all, you know, feelings that probably many of us have felt those at least once. Maybe we're feeling those things right now. But what are ways that we can boost both brain and heart health? There's no damage caused by negative emotions that positive emotions can't heal. Of course, if we have an ongoing thing of like all of these negative emotions all the time, that chronic buildup is what causes problems. A large body of research has shown that cardiovascular disease risk can be reduced by up to half with optimism, a sense of humor, forgiveness, social support, religious faith, or I would say spiritual faith, vitality, gratitude, altruistic behavior, emotional flexibility, and coping flexibility. People that are optimistic are less likely to be rehospitalized or die from heart disease, according to a Finnish research study. For optimal health, maximize the health of both brain and heart. For example, if you eat well and exercise but are still stressed out, your heart will suffer. And that's true. You could be eating the most amazing food in the world. It could be coming from your backyard or the farm next door. You could be having a great exercise regime, but if you're still stressed out, you know, it's, it's, you got to get to that root cause of why you're having that emotional conflict. Conversely, if you are not stressed out, but you overeat and do no exercise, your brain will suffer. Some heart and mind strategies include doing the basics, exercising for a half hour a day and eating a well-balanced nutrient-dense meal has been found to lower both risk of cardiovascular disease as well as cognitive decline. Working with a health practitioner, they say, to get blood pressure, blood sugar, and inflammation levels under control, and perhaps using supplements is also a key preventative step. And you could also do what I've done the last couple of years, especially as things have gotten zoggier. Buy yourself a thermometer, so you have that. Buy yourself an oximeter that will tell you your pulse and your oxygen saturation. Buy yourself a blood sugar monitor. Buy yourself a uh, blood pressure um, taking device, like one of those cuffs. It's really important to have this little kit in your house so you can know these things. Buy a stethoscope if you want, so you can know this information about yourself and you can buy all of this online, not not too um, expensive either. And just to know the basic workings of your body, just like how we have a scale in the bathroom. Of course, you don't want to be obsessive with it and be testing yourself multiple times a day. That could probably induce anxiety and actually hurt your heart. But as long as you're the kind of person that could keep that behavior in check and you don't become obsessive about something, it's nice to be able to have these little tools in your house that are very affordable and they're low tech. They're not going to have to like, you know, hurt you to get the information um, available and just to get a read on how you're feeling. And if you wanted to, you could always get further tests. You don't necessarily have to see Dr. Z. You can get tests done online, or you can just, if you if you prefer more of the intuitive approach, and you're at that point where you actually can read your body, then you can do that too. 
Something else, getting and giving hugs, oxytocin, quote, the love hormone released from pituitary gland during touching and hugging, also released um, after lovemaking, released after birth, released after yoni steaming, by the way, too. Lowers blood pressure and heart rate and regenerates new heart tissue in animal studies. Proactively reaching out to family, friends, and neighbors and coworkers can nurture affectionate ties, but if a human isn't nearby, even hugging a teddy bear has been shown to release oxytocin, which may explain why 40% of U.S. adults still sleep with a stuffed animal. Owning a dog, but not necessarily a cat, makes us more likely to survive a heart attack. Maybe because dogs tend to be more snuggly and more kind of um, needing of people overall. I feel like cats are kind of more independent where they're not the same as dogs. I mean, they're still great and you could, you could snuggle a cat too, but I feel like with a dog, it's just, it's probably an animal that is more kind of people centric. Cats are kind of oftentimes don't really care for humans that much or have like a favorite human and then everyone else is like, you know, on their shit list. Mindfully letting go. As studies with police officers, healthcare workers, and firefighters have demonstrated, mindfulness training effectively lowers anxiety and depression, even for those in life-threatening situations. Feelings and how we are choosing to react is critical. That's key. How we choose to react is key. Once we are aware of our reaction, the ability to let go of judgment, doubt, anger, resentment, fear, all of our negative thoughts and emotions and feelings is crucial to our healing process. Laughing a lot. This is a great one, too. I know oftentimes there's not a lot out there to make us laugh. The news is just terribly tragic. If you laugh, it's like you're laughing because like it's so sad. And a lot of the quote comedy that's out these days is it's so kosher and so just tasteless. It's it's the worst. Like I can't think of any popular current comic that actually is is humorous. But anywho, laughing a lot. Many of us have a chuckle deficit in our lives. The average five-year-old laughs up to 300 times a day. The average adult, only four. To lower the risk of heart attack and stroke, find ways to laugh long and hard, like real laughter yoga where you really get a good chuckle, such as watching hilarious films or videos on YouTube or shit talk. Physiologically, the endorphins released by hearty belly laughs bind to receptors that release nitric oxide relaxing blood vessels. So yeah, getting in good chuckles, laughing, super important, very, very important. And of course, it's, um, like I said, hard to find good comedy. I would just watch comedy from back in the day, like all the stuff that's deemed to be extremely politically incorrect. I find that stuff to be the funniest. Breathwork. To bring the mind and heart into a healthy, coherent, rhythmic pattern, the Heart Math Institute suggests heart-focused breathing, which involves imagining that we are breathing in through the heart as we inhale in a smooth, comfortable manner to the count of five or six, and then breathing out for five or six counts whilst visualizing that the breath is flowing out of the heart. You could also do this with yoni breathing, like breathing in the yoni and out the yoni as well. Meditation. Humans that practice meditation are significantly less likely to have a heart attack or stroke, perhaps because it has been shown to lower heart rate, blood pressure, and breathing rate, oxygen consumption, and cortisol levels. Uh, Kirtan Kriya, which is 12 minutes of daily meditation that includes chanting, finger movements, mudra, and visualization, has demonstrated that it slows cognitive decline, eases depression, and increases anti-aging telomere activity, with a cellular at a cellular level by 43% in eight weeks. 
And it can just be uplifting too to do something like kirtan kriya or any type of kriya that's going to make you feel good. Of course, with that, you have the breathing, you have the chanting, you have the mudras. So you have a bunch of different things going on at once and it really creates a pretty rad buzz. Yoga or Tai Chi. Yoga has been shown to lower inflammation and metabolic syndrome markers linked to heart dis-ease and reduce atrial fibrillation episodes. The slow, graceful movements of Tai Chi reportedly lower blood pressure and strengthen the hearts of humans with heart failure. And finally, music. Whether it involves listening or playing an instrument or singing, music has been shown to lower heart rate, reduce inflammation, enable longer exercise periods, ease anxiety after heart surgery and heart attacks, and help stroke victims regain the ability to speak. Choose music of whatever genre inspires joy and sing along for the extra benefit. If your partner is flummoxed by your enthusiasm for yodeling or your neighbor doesn't exactly approve of your attempts at arias, kindly inform him or her it's the doctor's orders. So yeah, some ideas there that we can kind of like soften our heart, mindfully letting go, giving and getting hugs, doing basics like having a good diet and um, having an exercise practice, laughing, breath work, meditation, yoga or tai chi, and music. And simple stuff, like we do, it doesn't require a lot of money to do breath work, to do meditation, to do yoga, to listen to music, to laugh. I mean, literally all these things on the list are essentially free. It just, are you ready to do them? Do you want to do them? So a little bit there about how thoughts and emotions can affect our heart health and how the tips I just outlined can kind of make us, you know, less hardened, you know, like, like I was saying earlier, Zog wants us to have hard hearts, especially women. They want to take away that nurturing ability from us and they want to harden us all off. They also want to make us all into victims. That's a huge thing. I did a show a while ago called the victim vomit culture. You can find it, um, you know, on the white wellness radio website, you know, the pod bean, just search for that. But they want us all to be victims uh, because they are the eternal victim with their with their hollow hoax narrative, right? So they want Black Lives Matter is victimhood, the whole that whole thing, a whole BIPOC crud, LGBTP is victimhood, veganism, MGTOW, feminism, right? Even white nationalism to an extent is victimhood. Like they want us all to be victims, right? Be a victor, right? The word Aryan and victim are not part of the same sentence, right? They want us to be victims because they are the eternal victims. So of course they want everyone to be created in their eyes, right? Because aren't they the quote chosen people of God? And if they were created in God's eyes, then shouldn't we be as well? And they're victims, so shouldn't we be victims? No, I reject all of that. I reject everything that's Talmudic. That, that really has to be the basic of be, basis of being pro-white is a vehement rejection of anything Talmudic right? That's, that's what being pro-white means to me. I thought it really is about being anti, because I don't really think that we should kind of, I don't know, base our ideologies or beliefs or philosophies around being anti, but sometimes it's necessary to say something like that, that you just want to basically, you know, push aside anything that's Talmudic. And could you make a list of all the pro things that are anti-Talmudic? Certainly. But at the end of the day, I think there's too many clubs out there that are anti this, anti that. And that resonates with like a negative, a negative frequency, right? It's not about being an anti-Semite. It's about being pro-white. Who cares about them? I don't. I personally could give a shit. I, I care about us. I care about, you know, 
our race. So I think oftentimes we get into that negative mindset. But what I was just trying to illustrate with what I said about vehemently, you know, issuing anything that's Talmudic, that's not my perspective. That's just a list of things I would give people of what isn't pro-white, right? So that was a bit about the heart and mind connection and all that jazz. And now I want to kind of move into a different topic that kind of also resonates a bit with the heart. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about Bioni massage. And of course, there's a heart and womb connection for all women, whether they believe it or not. And there's also a throat and yoni connection as well. So if someone's throat chakra is blocked, and I think it's one of the reasons we see a lot of thyroid problems in this culture, especially with women, they tell us it's because women have extra estrogen. I think it's more than that. I think that women aren't necessarily allowed to speak their mind or they're told to just shut up and sit down. But if someone's throat chakra is blocked, the Vishuddha chakra, chances are they're also going to have like some yoni blockage as well. And then we see this culture of just a lot of, you know, yoni problems, reproductive problems, inorgasmia. We see a lot of, you know, um, lack of communication sexually where women want men to do something. Men necessarily don't know what they want or what even to do. So I wanted to go over this article about the ultimate tantric yoni massage. That may sound kind of like funny language to everybody. Maybe not if you've been a listener for a while because Sanskrit is an Indo-Aryan language and yoni is a Sanskrit word for, it's not really a word for vagina because a vagina is means sheath. Vagina is just the whole. It's more of a word for vulva, even though a vulva is essentially the outside genitalia that a woman has and the vagina is the Yoni is really the best word to use, I think, anyway. So I just want to talk a little bit about yoni massage therapy. And this isn't really about, you know, masturbation or anything like that. Remember, it's all about eschewing the Talmudic stuff, especially when we live in this post-truth world. We need antidotes to this post-truth society. So tantric yoni massage is an antidote for living in the post-truth world. And could you do this on yourself if you're mate wasn't available or if you didn't have a mate certainly but i'm going to be going through this from the perspective of um, someone with a mate but you could totally do it if you didn't have a mate so what is yoni massage therapy that's right it is a therapy it isn't just about quote getting off and of course in this talmudic culture we're so uh just bought into the idea of we've got to satisfy our hunger, whether it be sexual hunger or, you know, actual physical, like legit stomach hunger. And it's more than just that. That sounds very Talmudic, honestly. And it's all about, you know, getting to the finish line as opposed to the journey, right? And we're all on some type of journey. So what is yoni massage therapy? In the practice of Tantra, a real yoni massage is the ritual of erotic connectivity. Just as we were talking about the whole heart and mind connection, this is about connectivity. Something that Zog wants to get rid of. Six feet distance. You know, all this, all this sludge. Erotic connectivity between a man and a woman, or it could be two women too, I guess, technically. Focusing on massaging the parts of the vagina known as the yoni. Yoni is defined as a vagina in Sanskrit and can be interpreted as a sacred space. Remember, all of us came out of it. Well, I guess if some of us were born via C-section, we essentially came out of um, the belly, but we all gestated in the upper, upper, upper area of the yoni, which is the uterus, unless we were test tube babies. But okay. Traditionally, a yoni practitioner carefully 
massages the vulva and the vagina whilst the receiver performs the breathing exercises. And yes, you can go to a place and get a professional massage if that's not your thing. And that's, that's totally okay. I'm not really promoting that. I'm promoting this more in the context of a consensual relationship. The idea that both mental and physical tensions are freed. Yes, this is a mental and physical um, therapy resulting in being able to take pleasure from the delicate yet enchantingly tantric touches of another man or woman. Orgasm is not mandatory, but a welcomed side effect. And oftentimes, if you go into this not thinking about just the goal, you're more likely to reach the goal. Just like I talked about in one of the sexuality shows when we're talking about what's the best position to make a woman squirt. How about just relaxing into it, breathing together, letting the woman feel comfortable enough so that it could naturally occur. Did you know in a recent survey, um, okay, women are saying, oh, this is interesting, 60% of women said they would consider a yoni massage performed by another woman. And that's, that's straight women. So, okay. I guess, a little, I guess it's a little bit different than, I think, I don't think most straight guys would want a lingam or a, a wiener massage from another guy. But see, it's also very different with women. This is not like a promotion of, of you know, homosexuality or lesbianism, but for millennia, just like we talked about earlier about women, you know, acting together in, in midwifery services, whether it was, you know, pregnancy, um, birth, caring, aftercare for a miscarriage or a termination. Women have always been on that level with each other where they've seen each other in these intimate settings and helped each other out. So the idea of a woman helping other woman out in this way to not just, quote, get her off, but to help release, you know, tension, maybe get rid of like some terrible like sexual baggage of like you know rape or incest or just you know the worst of the worst types of things women have had that relationship with each other throughout history that's not necessarily homosexuality but they've helped each other in that milieu of of women's issues which of course is sexuality and reproduction men haven't really done that for each other so just saying setting the environment tantra is a holistic practice and is not all about sex and orgasm it's the journey so before the actual yoni massage is performed and any intimate touching takes place, it's important to set the scene. So here's how you set the scene. Make the temperature to a comfortable level, turn on the heater or get in some fresh air or turn on the AC. So make sure it's a comfortable temperature in the room. Create some ambiance with some mood lighting. Dim the light or use a candle to titillate the senses. Play some calming and romantic and groovy music. Create a sexy atmosphere to get frisky by moving on to some music. Ensure complete privacy, so make sure you won't be interrupted by guests, roommates, children, pets, etc. Prepare your mind. Traditional yoni massage is a spiritual practice. Preparing your mind through meditative breathing exercises will improve your experience. And this is true of any sexual experience. If you sync your breathing up, you'll be able to kind of um, teleport or kind of get into a place where it becomes more of a meditative experience than just, quote, getting off, right? Prepare your body. Feel your best by making sure both you and your partner are clean and your fingernails are trimmed nicely. Yes, don't attempt this with long nails that can be painful and there could be like dirt and stuff um, stuck underneath someone's nails. So make sure your nails are nice and clean. So with the ambiance and the scene is set, everything is groovy in the room. Now you want to start breathing together. Breathing is essential, is central to the art of Tantra and authentic yoni massage. It can allow you to completely and freely let go of both mental and physical tension. It can also allow you to better connect to your partner, and this will tremendously enhance your yoni massage experience and allow you to take in all the spiritual and therapeutic benefits. 
The following breathing technique is designed to draw blood into the yoni, thereby enriching the massage. So start by sitting upright, facing each other, what they call yabyum sometimes. Exhale very deeply together. Concentrating the energy in your belly area, the solar plexus or the manipura. Close the breath, or close the mouth rather, and then inhale softly through the nostrils. Hold the breath for seven seconds, keeping in sync with your partner. Exhale completely for eight seconds through the mouth and lower abdomen and repeat the exercise three more times. So you kind of sink in to the scene by creating the groovy ambiance and then breathing together to kind of create that thing. I mean, even if, like I said, if you're breathing together in tandem during a sexual experience, whether it be yoni massage, intercourse, whatever it may be, you're going to drop into a deeper meditative state. So number one, you don't want to go straight to the yoni. You want to start with breasts. Instead of heading straight down to the vaginal area as a way to warm up, a more appropriate way is to initiate touching by starting a gentle tantric massage of the body and breasts. It takes women, of course, much longer, a little bit longer, to become aroused in a man, so the aim is to build up arousal slowly. A lot of men are good to go. They see a picture and they're like, all right, let's go, you know, or they see you in a sexy top and they're, they're ready to go. Women need a little bit longer. There's also an emotional component to turn women on, I think, more than men. Massaging the navel and stomach area is a great way to start as that area has lots of nerve endings. Gently massage the belly with some oil. And I would say what type of oil I would use. Coconut oil is nice. What I think is actually my favorite for doing any type of massage or even as a face lotion is a mixture of ghee and coconut oil together, which I infused with vanilla bean and rose petals. So I put it in a slow cooker on like the warm setting the ghee and the coconut oil. I used like the refined coconut oil so it wasn't like Hawaiian tropic smelling. And then I threw in a couple of dried rose petals and uh, a whole vanilla pod. And I let that simmer and then I strained it. And then I had this beautiful vanilla rose infused cream, which can be used anywhere on the body and it smells really feminine and sexy. So start massaging the belly with oil caressing the chest, the rib cage, the lower belly between the breasts. This whole area is often ignored whilst lovemaking, but is very effective when igniting arousal. And yes, both those things are true. When it's clear that her body is beginning to heat up, now the breasts and nipples can receive more attention. Before touching the nipples, begin with gentle caresses of the breasts and then move on to playing with the areolas. Like don't just go straight for the nipples, like the entire breast. Oftentimes men will just go, straight for the nipple, straight for the clitoris. Like there's nerve endings all over the body. Like all touch feels nice. You don't have to go straight for like the super erogenous zones. The body will start to respond to this now. So now the nipples can receive love with very gentle pinches, teases, and circling actions. It's important not to overdo this and to alternate the strength of touches. Now to the yoni massage. Now that the scene is set with the breast massage, the breathing, and the ambiance, now it's time for the yoni massage. So penetration is not necessarily required. Of course, it could end with that if that's your, that's your jam, but it's not necessarily part of it. Like it isn't a requirement of the yoni massage. The focus is around the other areas of the vagina to increase blood flow to the nerve endings and be open-minded to avoid going too far internally. Of course, it depends where a woman is at on her cycle. If she's closer to menstruation or if it's around time of ovulation, the cervix is going to be higher up because the cervix always goes higher up when it's going to open around menstruation time or it goes higher up around ovulation time. So if there's sperm coming through, it'll be easier to get the sperm up the cervix into the uterus. 
So here is a step-by-step -step guide of how to do a yoni massage. First, you want to circle the yoni, start by massaging around the clitoris, bring sensation to that area, but not directly on it. Some females have different thresholds of sensitivity, of course, depending on, you know, how large it is or how small it is. So that's why the body hides the tip of the clitoris with a small hood. The hood is essentially analogous to the male foreskin. Small circular movements using two or three fingers around the clitoral hood should be performed slowly with extra attention, ensuring the touch is slow and mindful. It should be more of an exploratory style with varied circles, starting from large to small, moving away from smaller circles as you progress. Try to imagine you are lightly pushing blood flow to target your clitoral area, which sometimes, but not always, can be visibly seen as it starts to slightly engorge and swell. When your circles have become so small that they embark on the clitoris hood, ensure you massage the skin here very gently to maintain circular movement in your touch. Avoid retracting the hood of the clitoris as this will expose the very sensitive tip, which may or may not be ready for direct stimulation. And this is the whole buildup. This is the whole sensuality or foreplay of sex as opposed to just, you know, slamming it in and calling it a day, right? Lip sinking. One of the most overlooked areas of the yoni is the labia. These are the lips that mark the entrance to the internal vaginal area. And of course, there's two. There's labia majora, which are the outside lips, and labia minora, which are the inside lips. Sometimes these will be extremely evident. However, on many females, they are almost always completely concealed by the pelvis skin. It really depends. It's all different. These lips are also populated with a large amount of nerve endings, meaning they are a perfect area to stimulate for arousal. This is an area that's typically, like I said, very overlooked. Once located, rub your fingers around each lip, making sure to be mindful and touch each crevice and contour slowly. You can try working on the outer areas first, then move to the inner parts. Take consideration not to let your fingers wander too far into the internal parts of the yoni at this point. So we're building up to that point. Now the push and pull. Place one finger on the left and one to the right of the clitoris hood. Use a push-pull technique to retract and reveal the tip, then conceal it again on your next movement. This is similar to how you would approach masturbation of the penis, with the clitoris head being equivalent to the penis tip. But the clitoris actually has way more nerve endings, and it's really, really tiny. It has up to 8,000 nerve endings. It's the most um, innervated part of the human body, even more than the penis, actually. Only apply mild pressure to each side, and again, try to avoid hard pressure on, very, on the very top of the clitoris. Your speed should be very slow at first, slightly faster as you progress with alternating pressure to evoke stimulation and success sensation. As you continue, you can attempt to alternately press each finger as you push and pull to enhance the clitoral massage. And finally, the big finish. It's important to note that orgasm is not the purpose of all yoni massage. In fact, some authentic tantric techniques, they actually avoid it because they actually want to build up that energy. That's what it's about. It's not about just, you know, releasing. It's about, it's the opposite of pornography. Pornography is based on release, right? Based on images that are going to get us to a quick release. This is about building up that reserve of essentially orgasmic energy, even though it may not end in an actual orgasm. For those of you who would like to complete the yoni session with an orgasm, let's face it, it's most of us, you can proceed with the next step. And yeah, of course, this is, this is a nice part of it, especially for people or women rather, who may have issues with inorgasmia, this whole idea of building this energy will get them more in touch with becoming more orgasmic, right? 
Start to consider the yoni area as a whole now with multiple areas to be stimulated in combination. Run your fingers from the very top of the yoni over the clitoris with a little more pressure than before, then down around the lips and the vaginal opening. Use rhythmical touch to now proceed from the bottom up and repeat, adjusting pressure and speed based on the pleasure of the journey your partner is expressing. And of course, read your partner whilst this is occurring. If she's breathing in a certain way or looks a certain way, read her signals. Every woman is going to be different, just like every man is going to be different. So you really have to not just know the proper techniques to do, it's more about getting in tune with what that person likes. It's like when you cook for somebody, like you know someone doesn't like spicy in their food, someone you know doesn't like certain herbs like you have to figure out what everybody likes like it's not just about you know trying out this amazing new position you saw like on the cover of cosmopolitan this position will you know is, is the best position ever like to who like what like it's it's really individual just like our food choices if you would like to advance with two-handed movements use one hand to perform the clitoral massage stimulating with your fingers, the other hand should embark on the vaginal lips and synchronize in a repetitive motion. If penetration is something your partner is happy to receive, then you can use your second hand to enter the yoni with your fingers using a come here or a come hither finger motion. Those of you who are familiar with the location of the female sacred spot, known as the G-spot, the Grafenberg spot, can use this opportunity to seek it and incorporate a G-spot massage. So there we go, the basics of a yoni massage. And what are the benefits of yoni massage? Besides feeling good and relaxing and sharing an intimate moment, it's mentally healing. So many women have reported that yoni massage supported the mental healing process of painful menstruation, infertility, and painful intercourse. So it could be really healing on like a deep womb level. Number two, improve sexual relationships can help unlock fear of intimacy and touch improve trust and um, and help um, develop a higher sex drive release higher energy can help achieve a greater connection with mind body and soul and finally more intense orgasms surveys have revealed a 50 percent increase in the intensity of orgasm so that's a lot of healing right there that we don't have to go to Dr. Z for, right? We don't have to go to Dr. Z for a lot of this stuff. But imagine if we could help, you know, make ourselves more fertile, have an easier period, improve our sexual relationship with our partner and ourselves, release higher energy, possibly getting like stuck emotions out of our tissues. As they say, the issues are in the tissues and make ourselves more orgasmic. I mean, orga essentially orgasm is part of life force, right? That's why Big Z with all this pornography, they want, you know, especially men to just, you know, be jacking off 24 sevs, you know, spilling their seed because they know that that's life force and they want their victims and they want to hoover up everyone's life force, just like in that dark crystal movie with the Skeksis we're doing, right? So think about this as you navigate your sexuality and you're never too old to come into your sexuality. You know, some of us were late bloomers with sexuality. Some of us have probably had maybe negative experiences sexually, or maybe we never got the proper sexual education or our, our, you know, our education of sex came from stuff like, you know, Zog pornography, which really doesn't give you an idea of what like a sexual experience is supposed to be. It just shows you like nudity and, you know, positions and the squirting in the pornography, I think is fake too. Not that squirting is fake. It's not, 
But I think like what they show you in pornography is just like a hoax to make it like look fake. Those could even be trannies with vagioplasties. So a lot of us didn't get the sexual education that we needed. And then it just brought us deeper into this Talmudic paradigm of sexuality, which of course reverberates onto the male-female relationships. And there's still so much I'm seeing misogyny especially in the quote movement or the confines of the movements, whatever you want to call it, you know, racial movement, movements. And I think oftentimes that may happen because we're not really doing practices like these yoni massages. Like if these men who are misogynists got a chance to be with a woman who they trusted and, and she trusted her, or that she trusted him and they were doing like a sacred yoni massage and then lovemaking, maybe there would be less misogyny in this world, right? If we actually knew how to, to care about each other and care for each other. So just a bit there about uh, tantric yoni massage and something that you might want to try. And like I said, if you don't have your um, mate is not wherever, you don't have a mate or your mate's not around at the moment or whatever, your, your mate's busy doing something or your mate less, or maybe your mate just isn't into this and we tried time to get a new mate, but you can do this yourself as well. Um, of course, you know, no one's going to come to save you or save your sexuality or save, you know, save your diet, save your fitness regime. You've got to do these things yourself. Can you work with someone else as a helper to help you heal yourself and ignite your, your passions? Certainly, but you're the one that's got to put in the work in the first place to, to get started. So a bit there about Yoni Massage, kind of a, a wild show today with a bunch of mixed up topics, but nevertheless, important stuff. Let's see, we've got some things right here. <laughs> Six Four Aaron is saying, I'm stuck at work and listening to this makes it tougher, LOL. My mate is in for a treat tonight, LOL. Well, that's great. See, I, I love to hear that, that men are enthusiastic about doing this type of stuff. Like that's probably the biggest, I would say both sexes probably agree with this, n that Having enthusiasm to be with someone else, to try something else, try something like he likes or she likes, that's probably one of the sexiest qualities, enthusiasm, right? That makes someone a thousand times more attractive and sexy to have enthusiasm, to care about, yeah, let's try this, let's do this, right? So that's wonderful. I hope your lady has um, a wonderful time tonight. Epiphany is saying, lots of great info here, guys, take notes. <laughs> and Tulian is saying, hello, people, hello, greetings. So yeah, a little bit there about um, Yoni Massage and, and all that groovy stuff. And let's see, what else um, did I want to talk about for this show? Just a couple of more things I wanted to talk about. I wanted to talk a little bit about transcending dietary terrorism. So now we're switching up the topics a little bit. And yeah, I mean, just living in this world, they're terrorizing people on all different fronts, 24-7, all the time. It's sludge, you know, nonstop, nonstop. So I want to talk a little bit about just transcending dietary terrorism because we're always being told all these things all the time. And just like sexuality, diet is very individual too. We're all going to like what we like based on many things, you know, our childhood, um, our programming, you know, our, our, there's programming of childhood. There's the, the whole cultural programming. There's probably even religious programming, racial programming. It goes on and on and on. So we have this ideology in the West. And of course, like I said earlier, this isn't an insult to white Western civilization. It's when I talk about the West, I'm talking about Talmudic, you know, Talmudicism, essentially. So we have this food ideology in the West and the East, just like we have this food ideology, uh, this sex ideology in the West and the East as well. 
So in the West, we're obsessed with the tabulation of food. We're obsessed with the presence of proteins, carbohydrates, fats, vitamins, minerals. And those things are important. You know, it's, it's basic. Uh, but foods that contain similar quantities and proportions of these nutrients are considered equivalent in biological value. Now, that wouldn't be true in the Eastern or the Aryan context. So in this Western principle, we believe that a bowl of spaghetti with tomato sauce is equivalent in protein and calories to a two-egg omelet. And a peanut butter and jelly sandwich is equivalent to a chocolate eclair and a glass of milk. And when we use this type of ideology to kind of, you know, give people advice about food, we assume that everyone is the same physiologically. And this is, this is even not true in the confines of the race. First of all, we know that there's a difference between male and female, old and young. Um, and then we have differences within, between the races, of course. But let's say we were all just talking about white females in their 30s. We would still need different diets for, for these people, depending on their background, right? So health-conscious Americans evaluate their diet on the basis of whether foods are fresh, unrefined, without artificial ingredients, or too high in cholesterol, calories, sugar, and salt. But we still go into it with this idea that we're all the same physiologically, and we're not. In Chinese medicine, or in more of the Eastern, or I would like to say like more of the, let's just use the word dharmic, the dharmic arts of medicine. Who we are determines what is most beneficial for us to eat, and what we eat is considered to affect the expression of who we are. Both food and people are understood within the language of yin, yang, or yin, yang, and the five phases, foods selected on the basis of their correspondence with individual patterns. So this could be modified by climate, season, and acute illness. That's why, let's say, one of our people living in Finland is going to have a very different diet than one of our people living in Florida, right? And as they should, because they're very, very different climates. People who are cold and dry need warm, moisturizing food. It's pretty, uh, you know, commonsensical right there, right? People who are, wait, people who are, need, okay, people who are hot and damp need cool, drying food. People with congestion need decongesting food. People who are depleted need replenishing food. The appropriateness of a food cannot be established without knowledge of the context. Not everyone will benefit equally from foods that contain the same measure of nutrients. In other words, one man's meat is another man's poison means that there is not a universal standard of what constitutes a, quote, good diet. And yes, we're oftentimes told in this Western paradigm that everyone's supposed to eat this food. And sometimes that can be true if it's, you know, something that's going to be kind of, uh, I guess, doesn't fit into like the extreme cool and dry and hot and warm. But oftentimes we really need to kind of form the crux of a diet around a sequence of foods that works for a particular person based on their constitution. And of course, we have two constitutions. There's a one that we're born with, and there's a one that we acquire in life based on our lifestyle choices and things like that. So a diet consisting mainly of raw fruits and vegetables cools yin, not because these foods have been refrigerated necessarily, but because they promote the loss of body heat and the secretion of fluid. For a person who has cold and damp conditions and is depleted, this diet exaggerates internal climate, aggravating symptoms of chilliness, puffiness, phlegm, fullness, and fatigue. So to say that everyone should eat heaps of raw fruits and vegetables is obviously a fallacy, right? Plus, that could also be very hard to digest for a lot of people as well. Similarly, a diet consisting of fried, broiled, fat-rich, and spicy food warms young 
since these foods have absorbed the heat of cooking and because they generate body heat and stimulate circulation. For a person who was hot, dry, and congested, these foods exacerbate existing problems such as nervousness, sweating, tension, pain, constipation, and fruit and thirst. The same salads and juicy fruits that undermine an already cool, moist person are therapeutic for someone who is hot and dry. And the warm stimulation of spicy, broiled, and enriching foods that congest one person strengthen another. So we can clearly see, just from these small couple of paragraphs, how a person's constitution or condition, and of course, maybe these, these phrases aren't so familiar to everyone, someone who's dealing with coldness, dampness, heat, dry, like these are kind of more like the TCM Classi classification of what someone is dealing with. And of course, this would be determined by a bunch of other symptoms that they have to say, okay, you have excess heat, you have dampness, you have, you know, key deficiency, which is um, chi, you know, or prana or vril deficiency, right? But it gives you an idea of how people need to eat different things to kind of create their own style of what works for them, right? And of course, every dietary regime is going to have some pros and some cons. That's how they get people to, you know, to acclimate and to hook onto these things. Just with the example of something like a carrot, for example, this will give an idea. A carrot tends to be a little sour, but also is classified as moisturizing, cooling, and dispersing because it is good for decongesting, decongesting key um, or energy and heat in the liver and stomach. A cooked carrot becomes relatively sweet, warming, and consolidating and is good for replenishing key of spleen, lung, and kidney. A raw or cooked carrot is yang compared with a watermelon and yin compared to an egg because a watermelon is juicy and sweet. So that would be yin. And then an egg is an animal food. It's, you know, it's a very yang thing, right? Cooked carrots are included in supplementing food recipes that are either warming or cooling because they are neutral in this context. For someone who is dealing with very cold and depleted constitution, even a cooked carrot may need to be combined with a warming spice like cardamom and ginger and made in more of a yang preparation like stir fried or broiled to make it more warming. So we can see how we can take a food and we can kind of use kind of culinary alchemy to make it more cooling, more warm, more dry, more wet, right? As opposed to like the Western tabulation idea of being obsessed with, you know, how many calories is in this, right? That you can see that that's really kind of missing, missing the point. So this is kind of how we can kind of uh, transcend the dietary terrorism that we're living around because it's all over the place everywhere. Um, there's also all types of terrorism, like the pornography is sexual terrorism, right? I mean, the food ideas are dietary terrorism. We live in a, a terrified, fear-based, post-truth culture, right? So that's why this show is about what we can do to get those post-truth antidotes going on. So just a little bit there. I just want to mention one more thing just so everyone can kind of get the idea of what I'm talking about. So for example, Let's say we're using Chinese medicine to talk about someone who has diabetes. Well, is the person with diabetes weak or strong, heavy or thin, hot or cold, damp or dry? So for example, a diet high in complex carbohydrates, excluding simple sugars and low, lower in protein and fats, can decongest an overweight diabetic with excess heat and dampness. Where a diet that has richer protein and more fats may be necessary for a weak or emaciated dry diabetic. Diabetes is understood to arise from a deficiency of moisture and essence, yin, of either the lung, spleen, or kidney, or all three. 
Herbs and foods that nourish yin as well as clear heat and dispel dampness are rep and replenish ki are an integral part of treatment for a diabetic. So as we can see, even when people have the same, quote, dis-ease in the Western paradigm, it depends on their underlying constitution and their symptoms to how it would be treated, right? As opposed to just a one-size-fits-all, you know, avoid all carbohydrates and take the Ziopel. Like, that's what Azog essentially tells us to do. Zog misses the point on everything because they see the body as a machine. Oh, this is broke. You know, let me just give you a transplant or give you this pill to, to quote, fix it, right? Doesn't work like that. If we only knew how to tend to the garden of the body, you know, with that Aryan spirit, we would be able to harmonize everything as opposed to attacking and warring the body, which is very, very zoggy. So just very brief right there, a little bit about transcending dietary terrorism and how we have to just see food from the paradigm of everyone being physiologically different, even if we're talking about the same race, sex, and age. Like I said earlier, we're talking about, let's say, white women in their 30s who are, let's say, they're all, they're all Italian. Like, they're all from Italy and they're all Italian. There's still going to be variation of what works for them. If they're all the same blood type, we're still going to have variations within that paradigm. And finally, I just want to end the show with a little something just about coming back to what I talked about in the beginning. We were talking about that post about summer and summer being the ovulatory time in the entire you know cycle of everything, the satanama. I want to talk a little bit about hijacking our consciousness and how important it is to keep our psyche clean, um, you know, really keep it clean because... There's so much sludge out there to uh, dirty and sully our psyche. And this is, of course, by design. It's one of their six million agendas, right? Like anything else. So I want to talk a little bit about just how we can keep our psyche clean. I'd say number one is to be careful of what you take in visually. You know, there's a lot of stuff out there that is just sludge for the soul. So just be careful about what you take in and what images you see. A lot of images can be very upsetting for us to see. Um because they're very dark and they want us to kind of live in that dark, hardened way to harden our hearts off. Remember, that's what we really want to avoid. We want to become aware, obviously, right? And part of being aware is being racially aware, but we don't want to let it make our, our hearts hard. So I want to talk about this little quote right here, which I think kind of uh, resonates with the whole idea of, you know, how to keep our consciousness from being hijacked. And here is this. I saw this the other day, uh, whilst I was on Telegram. And there's a lot of Zio sludge on Telegram. You really have to, like any anti-social media, if you're going to use it in the first place, if you just want to say, screw it, I'm not going to use any of it, that's that's fine too. That's, that's a great decision as well. But if you do want to use it, you really have to aggregate and really make your feed reflect what you want to see. So I saw this quote the other day I thought was really um, poignant and, and a good way to end the show. There is power in our personal choice to align with our true nature, our divine blueprint, and our limitless potential. It matters that we give ourselves permission to expand in our greatness in contribution to all through our divine authenticity. There's power in the realization of self, awakening our divine nature and activating the potential for expansion. Everyone benefits when anyone has the courage to self-realize and fully live into their divine authentic power. Recognizing our personal power to choose our current lens of consciousness is key we're not bound to the past. We're not bound to the status quo. We're not limited by the old default settings. We're free to choose now. And that was written by someone named Christine Clemmer. I found this on one of the 
one of the pages called Heaven on Earth uh, Experience over here on the, uh, the Talmudgram. So yeah, good stuff right there. And we, uh, we are, um, you know, we're not bound by the past. We can decide we want to be anew whenever we want to. It's, it's making that mind shift is really what it's about. And I think as time goes on, like I had said prior in the broadcast, this is really going to be a war of consciousness. Yeah, it's a spiritual war and it's a racial war too, but it's more than that. It's about keeping our consciousness clean. Because so many people, look, the people who believe all the Zio sludge out there, like Oyed AI being real, those are people who have had their um, consciousness sullied. Their eyes are no longer clean, right? So moving forward, especially as things can get really techno-Talmudi, and all the tranny humanism and all the transsexualism, all the LGBTP stuff, it's really important to keep our psyche clean, to keep our eyes clean, and to not allow uh, Zog to hijack our consciousness. Like, that is ours. Like, they see us as a machine, a programmable or a programmable machine that they could just abuse, use, and program like a robot. And um, I'm never going to give them the satisfaction of that, and you should not either. So we've reached the end of today's broadcast, Post-Truth Antidotes on White Wellness Radio. We've gone through a bunch of things on today's show, not a lot of stuff, the heart connection, yoni massage, uh, my opinions on the Roe v. Wade type of thing, um, talking about dietary terrorism, eschewing that, eschewing sexual terrorism, and just really coming home to knowing that we own our consciousness, right? And we can really... We can really make a change, even in our own lives. Sometimes we're so obsessed with, you know, saving every white person and saving the entire race. Like, maybe that's not a feasible feat. Maybe we're supposed to save ourselves and those around us. But, you know, trying to always rescue everybody, even if they don't want to, want to rescue. Look, a lot, of, a lot of the white race does not want to be rescued, does not want to be saved. Let's be honest, right? So let's focus more on how we can optimize ourselves and grow our own little circles, whether they be IRL or online. And we're very grateful to be able to have both in this day and age. One of the greatest things about technology is that we're able to connect with humans online, like I'm, I'm doing right now. We're connecting um, whilst I'm doing this broadcast. So that's, that's great that we have these opportunities uh, in this post-truth world. Oh, thank you, Epiphany. Amazing show today. I appreciate those kind words. Very, very, very kindly of you. So that's all about uh, that's about all I have um, for today's broadcast. Um, Post truth antidotes on White Wellness Radio. That was easy listening for you. That you learned something. Maybe you smile. That's always the goal in the show. That you feel comfort. That you feel you feel nourished. Uh, you feel nurtured, and you leave uh, better than you came into the show. That's kind of uh, you know the point of of doing this. So I will bid everyone farewell. Thank you for listening. I hope you have an amazing Tuesday. Whatever you're going to be doing today. And uh, we will be connecting again soon on either a mini clip or on um, the next broadcast. Find me on Patreon. Find me on Telegram. And until next time, everybody, Satnam.